Welcome to our fourth podcast of Genesis. It's only the beginning of Risen Fellowship. I'm Mike Booth, pastor, and we're glad that you have tuned in to listen to this. And now what we're doing is not a verse-by-verse study through the book of Genesis, but we're trying to give you a paint an overall picture of what God is doing in the book of Genesis. And we divided it in two parts. We're in Genesis 1 through 11, the first part, and we see four great events. We've already looked at creation. We've looked at the uh, fall of man. And now we're into the third great event in the book of Genesis, and that is the flood of Noah. Now, when I was a little boy growing up in Enid, Oklahoma, my mom and dad had a little stereo with an LP vinyl, 33, uh, long play album, and it was Tennessee Ernie Ford's songs and hymns. And one of the songs on there was Noah Found Grace in the Eyes of the Lord. And as a young boy, I was just enthralled by this song, and I thought it was a great way Not that I will sing it for you, but that I'm going to share the lyrics to tell the story about Noah and the flood. It said, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And it goes to tell the story like this. Well, the Lord looked down from his window in the sky and he said, I created man, but I don't remember why. Nothing but fighting since creation day. I'll send a little water and I'll wash them all away. So the Lord came down to look around a spell and there he found Noah behaving mighty well. And that's the reason that the scriptures record Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord said, Noah, there's going to be a flood. There's going to be some water. There's going to be some mud. Take off your hat, Noah, and take off your coat. Get Ham, Sham, and Japheth and build yourself a boat. Noah said, Lord, I don't believe I could. The Lord said, Noah, get some sturdy gopher wood. You never know what you can do until you try. Build it 50 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. Noah said, there it is, there it is, Lord. The Lord said, Noah, it's time to get aboard. Now take a creature, a he and a she, and of course, Mrs. Noah and the whole family. Noah said, Lord, it's getting mighty dark. The Lord said, Noah, get those creatures in the ark. Noah said, Lord, it's beginning to pour. The Lord said, Noah, hurry up and shut the door. Well, the ark rose up on the foot of the deep, and after 40 days, Mr. Noah took a peek said, we ain't moving, Lord. Where are we at? The Lord said, you're sitting right on Mount Ararat. Noah said, Lord, it's getting mighty dry. The Lord said, Noah, see my rainbow in the sky? Take all the creatures and people to earth and don't be more trouble than you're worth. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord and he landed high and dry. That's a good song and you can go on YouTube if you want to and listen and even watch uh, Tennessee Ernie Ford sing that. But now let's move into the scriptures. And let's talk basically through Genesis 6, 7, and 8. First of all, Genesis 6 and 7 really explain for us what kind of person was Noah. Noah is not a minor player in the story of redemption. Matter of fact, he's mentioned at least 50 times in nine different books of the Bible. And we see what kind of man Noah was. First of all, he was a believing man who walked with God. Chapter 6, verse 9 says that he was a righteous man. Now, this righteousness that Noah had was not of his own works, of his own being. This was God's gift to him in response to his personal faith in God's word. And then also verse 9 tells us that Noah was a blameless man. Now, his righteousness talks about Noah standing before God. His being blameless really describes his conduct before other people. It doesn't mean that in being blameless that he was perfect or without sin. Only Jesus Christ was without sin. But his blamelessness before other people was that he had integrity. He did not uh, get pulled by the ways of this world. But the third thing that uh, Genesis tells us about Noah being a man 
who walked with God is that he was obedient to God. See, you and I, we must not only hear what God says, we must obey it too. And Noah's faithfulness, because he was faithful to God. Uh, we have Abraham, and because we have Abraham, that was the beginning of the Jewish nation. And through the Jewish nation came not only the Bible that we have today, but also Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Noah was also a man, who, a faithful man, who worked for God. And of course, what we find him doing in chapter 6 is building an ark. And this ark was for flotation and not for navigation. He wasn't setting out to build the Titanic. Well, maybe that wasn't a real good illustration. But what he did was build an ark for flotation to be able to be saved and delivered from the flood. Another thing we see uh, Noah doing was gathering the animals. And in verse 20, it says this of chapter 6, of the birds and after their kind, and of the animals and after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. Notice that in his sovereign power, Noah didn't go out and find these creatures, but in his sovereign power, God brought those creatures to Noah. And this magnificent demonstration of God's power didn't touch the hearts of Noah's neighbors because they didn't heed the word and they perished in the flood. It's interesting that the birds and the beasts and the creeping things, things that we usually as human beings look down on as inferior to us, they knew and obeyed their Creator's voice. But people made in the image of God, they refused to heed and obey God's word. Matter of fact, Isaiah would later write in the first chapter of his book, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's feeding trough, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. You see, God is long-suffering toward us as his people, even though we're sinners. But they were careless and they were rebellious to God's word. They ignored his message and they lost the opportunity to be saved. We also find that Noah was a secure man who waited on God. In chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, we find that there was a week of waiting. The scripture tells us that Noah and his family entered into the ark on the 10th day of the second month. But it wasn't until the 17th day of the second month that it began to rain. And so they waited a week for the rains to come. And when the rains came, they had no idea how long they would be on the ark. But the Lord did. Because just as the psalm, the 31st psalm says, the times are in the Lord's hands. As a matter of fact, Noah and his family were on the ark for a year and 10 days after God closed the door of the ark. After that year and 10 days, he opened the door and invited Noah and his family and all the animals to come out and again live on the freshly cleaned earth. So it was a secure man who waited on God, but he also waited on the day of reckoning. Clearly, this flood was a universal judgment. And Noah had been building the ark for 120 years before that day came. Now, some will want to argue that this is the language of appearance. It wasn't a universal flood. It's only writing about what the writer could see. But I believe anybody reading, picking up the book of the Bible, and just reading through Genesis 6 through 9 for the first time, just a personal reading, anyone would come away concluding that that was a universal flood. If it wasn't a universal flood, then I would ask the question, why did God give a universal sign like the rainbow if it was just a localized flood? And if God had promised 
that he would never send another flood like the one in Noah's day, and it was just a localized flood, then God has not kept his promise. Because for centuries since, there have been countless devastating local floods that have happened. And another argument is this. If it were not a universal flood, why didn't God just have Noah take up his family and gather the animals that came to him and move to a different location and wait for the flood to come and for those waters to rescind and when it was all done, then move back again? Why didn't he just send them to a dry place instead of going through the trouble of building an ark? I believe it was a universal flood. And Genesis chapter 6 also tells us that it says all flesh had corrupted God's way on earth. Now, we don't know if civilization had uh, spread to cover the entire face of the earth, but wherever humans went, there was sin that needed to be judged. And so this flood bears witness to the fact of universal sin and universal judgment. The earth was immersed in water, but the ark floated above the water and brought salvation to Noah and his family and to all the animals that were in that place of safety. And again, there's another ark that is uh, available for us today, and that ark is through Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ, as a matter of fact, is when Peter was writing about Jesus Christ in chapter 3 of his first letter, he used the story of Noah and the flood as a picture of baptism about the death, burial, and resurrection, that the earth was dead and buried under the water, but the ark rose above it, resurrected to bring the family safely through. Jesus Christ died on the cross and was buried, but he rose again, and through his finished work, all who are of his family by faith have salvation and deliverance from the death that is still to come. Now, Noah's flood does not in any way mean that water baptism washes away our sin. It's only obedience and faith and following the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in Him alone that our sins can be forgiven. Alexander McLaren, a great preacher of the past, wrote this about Noah's flood. He said, For 120 years the wits laughed, and the common sense people wondered, and the patient saint went on hammering and pitching his ark. But one morning, it began to rain. And by degrees, somehow, Noah didn't seem quite such a fool. The jest would look rather different when the water was up to their knees, and their sarcasms would stick in their throats as they drowned. So it is always, and so it will be in the last days. The men who live for the future by faith in Christ, will be found out to have been the wise men when the future has become the present and the present has become the past and is gone forever. While they, have, they who have no aims beyond the things of time, which are now sunk beneath the dreary horizon, will awake too late to the conviction that they are outside the ark of safety and that truest Appetite will be theirs, thy fool. Everyone claimed Noah to be the fool, but in the end, Noah was the wise one. Are you prepared for the final judgment? And then Genesis chapter 8 talks about the dawn of a new day. 
Now, when people are looking for a great chapter of the Bible to read for encouragement, most people would open their Bibles in the New Testament to Romans chapter 8. For that's one of the most encouraging passages of all of Scripture. And comparing Genesis 8 to Romans 8, Genesis 8 would seem nothing more than just a mop-up operation after the flood. But you know what? If you have been through the storm, then Genesis 8 can be new hope and new encouragement for you because this chapter's major theme is renewal and rest after the storm. But we find five things that God does after the storm. First of all, God remembers His own. He remembered Noah and his family. Now this word remember here that God remembered doesn't mean that God forgot something like we as human beings will do. And when we're going through a storm, it's real easy to think that God has forgotten us. But for God to remember is to, means that He pays attention to, or He is fulfilling a promise, or He's acting on behalf. And to remember as God does about Noah implies that this was a previous commitment made by God, and He's announcing the fulfillment of it. The second thing we see God doing is God renews His world. God was powerful enough to cover the whole earth with water, but He's also wise enough to dispose of that water when its work is done. Now Noah was seeing the earth become visible again, and he sent out a raven and dove to find out if it was time to leave the ark. And he looked out and he could survey and see the dry land, but he didn't walk by sight. Noah walked by faith and he didn't make a move until God told him, to the Lord told him to leave the ark. Walk by faith and not by sight. Third thing we see God doing after the storm is God rewards faith. Obeying the will of God not only involves doing the right thing in the right way with the right motive, but it also means doing it at the right time. And what caused the population of the world to reject God's word and perish is they were occupied with the ordinary things of daily life and they were unconcerned about eternity. They didn't think that God would invade their world or interrupt the schemes of things, but he did. Same thing we see happening in the world today. Many people scoff and mock at the people who say there's a coming judgment. As the New Testament tells us, there's a judgment coming with fire. They often look down upon us. They don't think God will intervene or interrupt in any way, but it's coming. And God rewards faith. And the fourth thing we see is that God receives worship. The very first thing that Noah did when his family left the ark was he made a sacrifice to the Lord. And the Bible tells us that God was, it was a pleasing aroma that he was smelling the sacrifice uh, that Noah had made. And this is merely a human way of stating the divine truth that God was satisfied with that sacrifice. He accepted it and he was pleased with his people and their worship. So God, as he begins a new world, receives worship. And the last thing we wanna look at in chapter eight is how God reaffirms the natural order. In verse 21 of chapter eight, it reads, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never will I again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Now God wasn't making this as a, a word or a promise to Noah. God was speaking these things to himself, 
but he was doing it because of Noah's sacrifice, of Noah's faith and obedience and worship. And he made the promise to himself that the ground that was cursed in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned, that the ground would no longer be cursed anymore. And he promised that there would be no more universal floods. And again, this is in response to Noah's sacrifice and obedience and worship. And as Noah is making the sacrifice, it's a foretelling of the picture of what the sacrifice of Christ would be on the cross. Because on the basis of the atonement accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross, God can say, a price has been paid for the sin of the world, and I can withhold judgment. Justice has been met. My law has been upheld, and I can show grace now to a lost world. I will not send another flood and wipe out the human race. Instead, I will offer them my great salvation. Now, this doesn't mean in any way that there is a universal salvation out there for every human being. God will judge sin. There is a coming and a future judgment of the world. Romans chapter 1 makes that abundantly clear that people turn their back upon God and they begin to walk their own way again. And God's judgment is coming upon them. It's being revealed against sinners, not only in Romans chapter 1, but even in the 21st century, we see where sinners are suffering some of the consequences of our sins even today. But in Romans chapter 1, God gave them over to the bondage that they desired, and He gave them up to their sinful ways, and the consequences of those sins began to eat up their own bodies. And one of the greatest judgments God can ever do is to allow His uh, sinners, allow us as sinners, to have their own way and to pay for their own sins. That's the judgment being experienced in the world today. But there is that future judgment that's coming, not a judgment of water, but a judgment of fire. 2 Peter chapter 3 makes that abundantly clear. But God also said there would be no more interruption of the cycle of nature. We're prone to take for granted sunrise and sunset. Oh, it's beautiful to look out in the morning and the sun rises on the horizon or setting in the evening. The palette of colors that God paints across the sky. So don't take these things for granted. Let all these things let you know that they're giving evidence that God is still sovereign and He's still sitting on His throne. Thank you for being with me as we look at the third event of Genesis, the flood of Noah. Be watching for the next event, the rebellion at Babel.